Well, good evening. We are going to be back in the 12th chapter of the book of Mark. We're actually going to wrap the book of uh, the 12th chapter of the book of Mark up this evening. And uh, before we get into the 12th chapter, let me just do a little recap as we look at where we have been uh, these last few weeks. So previously in our studies, on Sunday, the 10th day of the month of Nisan, we had Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem, and that began in chapter 11. We then moved to Monday, the following day, where Jesus cleansed the temple, and that started in Mark chapter 11, verse 12. We had then Tuesday, where Jesus is being questioned by various different groups, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Pharisees. They are questioning Jesus about a lot of different topics, and that is really from Mark chapter 12, or chapter 11, verse 27, through chapter 12, verse 34, and that's where we ended our last study, was in verse 34 of chapter 12. And if you recall, the reason for the questioning of Mark at this time in the temple courts is it goes all the way back to the 12th chapter of Exodus where the rules or the things that were laid out for the Passover lamb are really covered. And a part of that is there's a four-day period for the Passover lamb when you brought the lamb into your household where you were to examine the lamb to see if it was free from blemish, if it was perfect, and that is what made it worthy to be the Passover lamb that could uh, actually take the place of salvation for the Israelites as they were brought out of Egypt. So only the blood of the Passover lamb, a worthy lamb, could be used to bring the children out of Egypt and spare them from uh, losing their firstborn. So we ended last time within Mark twelve thirty four, and after that no one dared question him. So at the end... These guys had come with all the questions they could muster and everything they could come up with, and they were left really uh, befuddled and amazed at what Jesus said and how he responded. So now, in our study tonight, we're going to see Jesus begin by turning the table a little bit. On. Okay. Oh, that's the end. Look at me go. There we go. We're going to start and pick up in verse 35 and read these first three verses of Mark chapter 12. And then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire... I'm sorry, I'll start over again. In verse 35, Then Jesus answered and said, While he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard gladly. So first of all, let's get an idea of the setting. Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, not actually inside the temple itself. And if you look at the diagram I laid out here for you, when Jesus would have entered in, he would have come in where the number 11 is at, that's the gate beautiful or the eastern gate. He would have walked through the court of the women up these steps and he probably would have been somewhere in these outer courts which are called the courts of Israel where the men would gather. He could not enter into the temple because he wasn't uh, of the line of Levi and the, directly the line of Aaron. So that, in, in, uh, according to their Levitical laws, wouldn't have allowed him into the actual temple proper. He would have been out in the courts. 
And this question that he brings up, and what he's trying to bring about is, how is it that you call the Messiah the son of David, when in fact he refers, and David himself refers to the Messiah as my Lord? Now in this Eastern culture, and this Middle Eastern uh, religious and, and culture, they would not have ever had a son uh, or a father refer to a son, his descendant, as Lord. That would have been completely unheard of. So as a matter of fact, until the patriarch of the family really fell off the scene, even if the son was in charge of the day-to-day operations, he would still always refer to his father as Lord. He would call him master of the household. So this is completely backwards in the, in the thinking to think that David being the father of the Messiah, would ever refer to his son as Lord. And uh, what Jesus points back to is that David is actually writing this particular psalm through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the Jews, the issue is, is with the Jewish people, they would never uh, understand or want to recognize the Messiah as God. They believe that that the Messiah would be the son of David, they would be a descendant. They were looking for a ruler, for a king to come in. But when, they, uh, when Jesus began to preach this idea that the Messiah would also be God at the same time, that's really where they ran into some major issues. Now they had other issues, the fact that Jesus' teaching really went to the heart of the matter, and they had a black and darkened heart. But what they actually used... Uh, in the process that we're going to see in these coming weeks when they put Jesus on trial, is they said he's blaspheming because he's calling himself the Son of God. So this really goes to the heart of the issue that the Jewish people had with Jesus and his ministry, and that he's proclaiming that the Messiah is the Son of God. And this uh, problem that they're going to have is actually going to continue to go on throughout history. And we're going to see in the coming weeks as uh, we go through the tribulation as Jesus teaches on the tribulation period, that even in the last seven-year period, the last set of sevens that was prophesied in the book of Daniel, at the end times, that the Antichrist is going to come up. And and a lot of Jewish people are even going to fall for the Antichrist being the Messiah because he's going to come in as a ruler and as a king, and he's going to rebuild the temple. And they're only going to have a major issue when, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, he stands up by the altar and declares himself as God. That's where the abomination that causes desolation comes into place. And at that point in time, they're going to reject the Antichrist, and then literally all hell is going to break loose. So it's really something that's going to come down throughout history where the Jewish people are not going to want to see Jesus or not going to want to see the Messiah as God. They're going to see him as a man. And uh, what else is interesting as we look back at this scripture, at, at the 110th Psalm, I'm going to turn back there, because I think anytime Jesus uh, teaches on something, it's always worthwhile to go back and look at it. Perhaps he's pointing us there for a reason. And if we look at the first verse, we'll see this is the verse that Jesus quotes. And the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. But then if we move on to the fourth verse, something else that's interesting is the Lord was sw- has sworn he will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus points them back to a psalm where David is really writing from this third-person vantage point. This is really God speaking to his son as we read through this. But this fourth verse is interesting because he's not only claiming that the Messiah is God, but the Messiah is also a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And this is an interesting character that comes to us at first 
in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. And in that section of Genesis, what has transpired is Abraham uh, has a nephew, Lot. And Lot has been kidnapped by this group of kings who has come through and kind of ransacked this area. So Abraham gathers up 318 of his toughest guys. Abraham had quite the posse if he could round up 318 bad dudes. And they go after these kings and proceed to put a hiney whipping on them. And they bring back a ton of spoils as well as rescue his nephew Lot. And as they come back, they present uh, some of the hostages back to these kings that they had actually worked with, that Abraham had worked with. And one of them, in verse 18, is a king named Melchizedek. And it says in verse 18, Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest of God Most High. Salem is what we know as Jerusalem. And he blessed him, saying, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. So Melchizedek, even before the time of the Levites, even before uh, Jacob was ever even on the scene, is this priest of the God Most High in Jerusalem. And this is the order that uh, we're told in Psalm 110 that Messiah will actually be after. He won't be after the tribe of Levi from the line of Aaron. He will actually be from the line of Melchizedek. And to kind of button this up, if we go all the way back to Hebrews in chapter 6, Verse 19, so in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, this is what it says, In this hope that we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So in leading us back to this psalm, what Jesus is really saying is there's only going to be one that's ever going to be king and priest and prophet and that is the messiah jesus christ he's actually leading us back through the fingerprints of the holy spirit to this place where we can understand that there's more to this story than just jesus is coming in to to rule and reign there's a whole series of events that have come together and i bring all that out to say that anytime jesus is ever questioned or anytime he's ever trying to prove a point he always leads it back to scripture And I think that's important for us as we try to discern things that we see in the world or things that are preached to us from pastors or that we hear is that it's important to always make sure it's rooted in the word. So Jesus's claims to to the origin of the Messiah are right there in the Hebrew Bible, right in front of these guys' face, and they did not want to believe it. So let's move on. Okay, moving on back to the 12th chapter of Mark. Let's pick up again in verse 38. And then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. So Jesus right here is now calling out these scribes and Pharisees and these leaders that are gathered around in these temple courts. And for a little bit more detailed part of this message, uh, Matthew chapter 23 really covers this uh, in much more detail. And we don't have time to go through the entire chapter, but I did want to pull out a few things that Jesus is specifically referencing here in Mark chapter 12. Uh, First of all, he's rebuking their act of worship because that's what it was. It was merely an act. 
And in Matthew 23, verse 5, what he says is, But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. So the phylactery is this box that they would wear on their head. I put a picture up there so you could see it. And what it would contain inside was the Shema, which we covered in our last teaching, that Hero Israel, uh, the Lord your God, is one God. And they would wear these phylactery boxes in between the frontlets of their eyes because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, that's what, it was, that's what Moses actually put in there. But instead of just wearing these boxes, they would make them broad and wide and big. And the, because the bigger you can make your box, the more spiritual you are. So next thing you know, they've got these gigantic pallets on top of their head just to show that they're so super spiritual. And the next thing he criticizes is in verse 6. He says they love the best seats at the feasts and the best seats at the synagogues. So the best seats at the synagogues, sorry for all you recovering Baptists back there, were actually the front seats, not the back seats. So they would all fight to sit in the front seats of the synagogues. And the thing is, the front seats in the synagogues didn't actually face up towards the speakers. They turned and faced out towards the crowd. So as they're going through their act of worship and showing just how spiritual they were, you could see them going through all these gyrations to prove just how deep their spiritual walk is with God, with Yahweh. The next thing is in verse 7, and they the greetings in the marketplaces to be called by men, rabbi, rabbi. But then in verse 8, what Jesus says is, but you should not be called rabbi, for only one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. So they were just like that picture there in Spies Like Us, doctor, 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 doctor. They love to call themselves these fancy names, right? Rabbi, teacher, pastor, reverend, they ate that up. But Jesus is saying, no, you don't understand, there's only one teacher. There is Christ the teacher, and you are all just brothers. So he's questioning this act of worship. And then as we look uh, in Matthew 23, 13 through 36, he really goes on to pronounce then seven woes on all of these Pharisees and hypocrites and scribes. And the one I want to point out in particular for the sake of time is in chapter or in verse 27, where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And even so, you, are outward, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now that is a heavy message to lay down on some people, right? You're like whitewashed tombs. You look so good on the outside. You're doing everything right, but inside you're completely dead. And it's really easy to see that in these guys' lives. The hard part is when we get to look at the church today, and I get to look at my own life. And there's probably not a scripture or a passage that's more damning than that. So I think about my walk and what my Christian walk looked like for a long time. And it was very much to have it look outwardly like I had it all going on. But inwardly, there was really nothing. It was completely dead inside. That my goal from high school age, like these guys, was to be successful, was to go out and capture as much as I could and take the world by the tail, and I'm going to go to college, and I'm going to be, you know, the absolute best I can, and I'm going to make X amount of money, and I'll have a beautiful wife and a family, and a few years in, you know, I had it all. At 25, I was a vice president of a pretty successful construction company. At 33, you know, uh, an executive 
at the top of a billion-dollar corporation. My name was on uh, the billboard of every single store that we had, 100 locations in 10 different states. Man, I had it all. That amount I thought I had to make, I made 10 times that. But you know what I didn't have? I had no joy. I had no peace. I had no real inner prosperity. Everything was falling apart on the inside, but on the outside, boy, it looked good. And that's really the place that we come to. And, and the, the thing is, what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 3, I think, speaks volumes. Is He says, therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and they do not do. That the call we have as Christians, if we want it to be right on the inside, is to observe and do. All right, let's move on to this last section then of the 12th chapter. Picking back up in verse 41. And now Jesus sat opposite of the treasury, and he saw the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself, and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. So the first thing I want to point out is here's Jesus, two days before his crucifixion. And he knows he's going to be crucified. He's already predicted it. And yet, He's taking time to sit around in the temple courts and observe what's going on around him. i got to tell you, folks, if I'm two days away from imminent death, I am not going to be sitting around. I'm probably going to be scrambling around trying to get my affairs in order. Maybe I'm going to bungee jump, skydive. I'm going to get some stuff in. But Jesus is in the temple courts, and he's observing what's going on around him. And if I can run the clicker, I'm going to show you this. He's looking at the temple treasury. And if you look at this uh, number nine in the court of women, the little number 10 that's down in the corner, this is actually where the temple treasury was located. So it was actually in the court of the women. But you could sit up on these steps and you could look down and actually observe and see what's going on. And the temple treasury was actually made up of 13 trumpets. And these trumpets that they called them were actually a box with a metal object that looked the shape of a trumpet actually coming off of it. So when they would drop their money in, it would go in through these trumpets and down into the collection underneath. And interestingly enough, it brings to light, uh, I think, into a new light, a verse. When you think about this image in Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, when Jesus says, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. So if you wanted to sound a trumpet and you think about it, you've got this metal object down in the treasury, boy, you'd drop that thing from a distance, right? You'd put in a big old handful of money and you'd hear it clang around. Make it rain, right? Just let it right down there. And that's the sounding of these trumpets. But Jesus is saying, that's not what we're to do. And interestingly enough, in verse 41, I think, is really where we have the operative uh, word that we can kind of look at and why I titled the message. That was not a typo, by the way, the power of giving. 
I, I know if Angela probably read that. She's an English major. She's like, that's, that's awful. You completely butchered this word. It has a point, dear, I promise. But in verse 41, now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put their money in. He wasn't paying any attention to the what. He was watching the how, which caused me to think about uh, because I'm an engineer and, and I like diagrams and pictures, I can't do anything unless you draw a picture for me. So if you, you want to tell me how to do something, you're wasting your breath unless you're going to draw it out on a map. You've got to draw this whole thing out. So what does a diagram of giving look like? So the three P's that I came up with were preparation, practice, and promise. But first off, in preparation for giving, how do we prepare to to uh, give like this. If we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3. And if you said to yourself prior to this, listen, he hasn't flipped all over the Bible yet like he normally does, well, strap on your seatbelt because we're going to flip now. Sorry about that. Starting in chapter 13, verse 3, what Paul says is, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, I give everything away to the poor, I give my body up to be a martyr, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So to begin with, as we try to prepare ourselves for giving, if we don't have love, we're really wasting our time, right? And then we look at position or understanding. How do I understand my place, my position when it comes to giving? If you go all the way back to Psalm chapter 50. In Psalm 50, this is what the Lord says, looking at verses 9 and 10. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the field is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. So our understanding comes into play when we think about uh, Jesus owns everything anyway. It's all God's, right? So if you give anything to God, you're really only giving that which what you've already received. You can't give him anything that wasn't his to begin with. And he says it right here. Every beast of the field is mine. So we see our understanding. And then if we flip over to one more psalm, Psalm 51, we need to look at our heart condition too. Where he says in verse 17, And the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. So in preparation, we have to come from a place of love. In position, we come from a place of understanding. I understand that nothing that I have is actually mine anyway. God has allowed me to have everything, and then my heart needs to be in a spot where it's broken, where I, where I understand all these things. All right, so next, then, in practice, the next P, practice. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So how are we to practice? We are to give cheerfully or literally give hilariously. So every time we go to drop a tithe in the tithe box, we should laugh out loud, maybe not out loud because that may be a little bit showy. Maybe we talked about that a minute ago. Maybe laugh as you're writing the check when nobody sees you laughing about it, right? It should be a throw your head back and, I can't believe the Lord's allowed me to do this. This is so great. Or as we donate our time to Children's Church, 
Rather than being grumbly, oh, those kids. Oh, it should be from a spot of, oh, I can't wait to see their beautiful faces today. I'm so excited. What a joy it is that I get to do this. I can't believe it. And then lastly, after we've got ourselves prepared and we know how to put it into practice, is then the promise. All right? Now, there are a lot of you out there that are probably super spiritual. I'm probably not nearly as spiritual as you. And you'd say, listen, you shouldn't give with the idea that you're going to get something back in return. I'd like for you right now, before you and God, to sign over whatever promises you're going to get, sign them right on over to me. Because I'll take them. I'll take them all day long. I'm looking for a good promise, right? The fact of the matter is, is that if God's going to lay it out here, this is what we're going to get if we go down this. So in the words of Jesus in Luke 6, 38. Luke 6, 38. What he says is, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, you will be put into your bosom. Whew! That's a promise, right? I mean, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. I, I think I like the sound of that. And then in Proverbs chapter 19, Mike covered this a couple weeks ago as we went through Proverbs. All of us, I'm sure, have got the family member, the brother-in-law that sleeps on the couch for a month, that will not get a job, that always comes and asks for money, right? That's the guy that you've got in your life or gal that you know if you give them money, you are never going to see it in return. It ain't going to happen. But what the Lord says is in Proverbs 19:17, he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given capital H. So our payback, our promise is going to be back from the Lord. We may never see that, but he's going to return it. And then lastly, in Malachi, I like that guy. Chapter 3. Starting in verse 8. Malachi 3.8 says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Now there's a return on an investment, right? And I will pour out a blessing that you will not have enough room to receive it. And in the Hebrew, the word try is bakan, which literally means to put to the test. This is a spot you can look to in the Bible where God says, test me, go ahead, give it a shot. I dare you. Because he's going to do it. He's going to provide like this. And that's the promise that he's laid out there if we're willing to have enough faith to be able to actually step out and do it. So how then does our widow match up to this? As we look at, at this diagram of a giver, how does the widow line up? Well, in preparation. We don't know a lot about her, but we do know she's a widow. So that means she's lost her husband at some point. Now, we don't know if her husband was a great guy and her best friend. We don't know if he was a complete turd. It may be somewhere even in between. But at the very least, he was a provider. At the very least, he was a confidant of some type. So she's coming in with a broken heart. And she's obviously coming in with not a whole lot financially because she puts in 
two mites. And Jesus says that's all she had to live on. That's it. So in practice, though, she comes in very quietly, very humbly, trying not to be noticed, not knowing that our Lord and Savior is there in the corner checking out what's going on. And she gives very quietly. And then the promise. What's the promise look like? Well, the Scripture doesn't tell us what the promise looks like, but knowing the Lord and how He works, I'm going to take a little bit of a gamble here and say that she is up somewhere on high and exalted in heaven right now. Think about it. How many times this message has been shared over the last 2,000 years, and think about how many lives have been saved because of the story of the widow and her two mites. So you may not think it's very much. We may not think it's very much because we're busy and we're focused on the what she gave and not the how she gave it. That if she's up there and there's a slot machine in heaven, there's probably not, stone me up here, but the, every time she pulls that thing, it probably sounds like ding, 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 ding. She's a winner every time, right? She's probably even a little bit embarrassed by this story. Like, oh, Lord, another widow's mind story. Really, stop it. I'm shy. I don't like all that attention. But it's great, right? That's the promise that he puts out there for us. And I think about how we store treasures up on this earth. We're so quick to want to store these treasures like the whitewashed tombs. And we want to store and we want to put away things. And then we look at the light of what just happened this past week. And we see a random crazy person with a gun, right? Picking people off. And it's horrific. And it's awful. And that Whatever we try to store up here, it's just one crazy person away from somebody being able to take it. But all the things we store up in heaven, all those things thieves and moths and rust cannot get to, can't touch it, right? Because God's got his hands on it. And that's where our focus needs to be. So I think about widows, too, in my life that I know personally. And my grandmother was just here uh, this last week. And she lost her husband almost exactly a year here in just another month and a half. And for 62 years, he was her best friend, right? So there's sadness there. There's loss, deep hurt. And yet, once a month, she at the Grace Bible Church in Sebring, Florida, volunteers to go be a greeter at the door. So on any given Sunday when she's there, some thousand people come in and out of this big mega church And she told me, it's my goal to shake the hand of every person I can get to and and give them a smile so they can see the love of Jesus. That's what I'm worried about. And what those people don't know is while she's rushing around trying to shake every hand she can shake with her beautiful smile, is that as soon as the service is over, she's got to rush back to her house and get back on oxygen that she was supposed to be on full time, according to the doctor. But she's not going to do that because it might limit her ability, not out of pride, She just says it's bulky and it's hard to carry that thing around and I've got hands to shake. She's not worried about that. Her how is this is how I'm going to do it because God's been good to me, even though I've lost my husband. Even though I could look at this side of things, I'm choosing to see I want to share the love of Jesus with these people. And I think about my other grandmother who, again, lost her husband, but was here a couple months back. And at 83 years old, when she's here, she's talking to me about a Bible study she just finished on putting on the full armor of God. I think, wow, at 83, walking with the Lord almost all your life, and you're still 
doing it. You're still trying to, you know, attack this thing by, by going to a Bible study on how I can put on the full armor of God. And as she's talking to me about it, she said, you know, part of it's a little bit depressing because in this study, it talks about being a warrior. She said, man, most days I don't feel like a warrior. I feel like it's hard to get out of bed. You know, I've had a hip replacement and it's just hard. And I share with her, I said, you know, in David's life, at the very end of his life, I think it's in the 21st chapter of 2 Samuel, but he's out and he's got his sword out and he's just going to town with one of Goliath's sons. And they're battling it out and this giant's getting the best of them physically. And his nephew, Abishai, has to come over and he has to help out and they proceed to kill the giant. But what Abishai says is, David, it's, I'm summarizing by the way, he says, you need to go back to Jerusalem, lest the lamp of Israel be extinguished. Listen, man, you're too valuable to be out here physically fighting these battles. You need to get back to your palace, lest your lamp be extinguished. But what we know about the life of David, because you can read through his Psalms, is while he physically may not have been able to slay giants with his sword, he was on his knees slaying giants in prayer. And what I said to her is, what I need is a warrior just like you that's on your knees praying for me. Because it wasn't that many years ago where this guy was taking his whole family down a bad road. And if it hadn't have been for you praying for your grandson, he wouldn't be able to sit up here and do this. So you are a warrior in my eyes. And she was thinking about the what she had to give and not the how she had. And that's really where the pow power of giving comes into place. And that's what my prayer is for all of us tonight. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this message. Lord, thank you for the story of the widow's mites. Thank you for an example of what it looks like for a woman who is determined to give all to you. And thank you, Father, for the promise that you've got that you're not going to be void on your word. You're going to return that to her many, many times over. That if we sow bountifully, we'll reap bountifully. Thank you for that, Father. And I do pray for all of us here tonight that, uh, that we would be able to live this thing out on the inside the way we'd like to portray it on the outside. And on a Wednesday night where it's hard probably to hold it all together because we're tired and from a week of work or from a, a long, hard day good or bad, Lord, I pray that we just be able to give it all to you. Where our guard is maybe down a little bit, that we'd be able to offer these things up to you on this altar. So thank you, Father, for giving that opportunity to us. I pray if there's anybody here tonight that's looking to make a decision, that doesn't know you on a personal level, that, that maybe is trying to store up things on earth and make this earth their heaven, that that decision could be made to reverse that course, Lord, that we would be able to store up our treasures in heaven where they will last. In Jesus' name.